Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're continuing our series of programs preparing you for the election. When you go to the voting booth on November 6th, uh, some of you will be faced with a choice in House District 3 between current and uh, Republican uh, Jack uh, Draxler and his uh, Democratic opponent, Roger Donahoe. We'll uh, talk with both of those gentlemen later in the program. You'll also, wherever you are in the state be faced with this question. Constitutional Amendment A. Shall the Utah Constitution be amended to require a portion of the revenue from all the state's severance taxes, excluding severance tax revenue used for Indian tribes, to be deposited into the Permanent State Trust Fund beginning July 1st of 2016? Severance tax, as you may know, has to do with tax collected on oil, gas, and minerals extracted from the state. And this constitutional amendment would require a portion of those revenues go into the Permanent State Trust Fund, which is uh, designed as a backup to the Rainy Day Fund. Uh, puts those revenues forward to future generations. can only be ex- uh, extracted from that fund uh, by a three-fourths uh, vote of the uh, legislature and approval of the governor as well. Those uh, supporting this amendment say that Utah's natural resources belong to all generations, not just ours, and that uh, that helps to benefit future generations. After all, someday those oil, gas, and mineral uh, taxes will dry up along with the oil, gas, and minerals. Those arguing against uh, say that Utah already strikes a good balance between future generations and the problems of today and uh, that uh, constitutional amendment would restrict our ability to respond to today's uh, problems. And uh, to debate this issue, we have the uh, sponsor of uh, constitutional amendment A uh, with us on the the line. That is Representative uh, Jim Nielsen. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. And uh, arguing against is uh, Representative David Litvak, uh, who is the minority leader in the House of Representatives. Representative Litvak, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Let me start with you, Representative Nielsen. Uh, j- your brief explanation of why Constitutional Amendment A is needed. You actually stated the the case uh, pretty darn well. We have uh, a non-renewable resource, and it'll be gone one day. And there's one more thing you didn't mention, and that is severance taxes go up and down. In good times, they, they're well over $100 million. Today, they're they're down some because prices on commodities are down. And when we get in the habit and get in the mode of spending every penny of a revenue stream that is very unstable and um, changes dynamically, we end up in a situation when times are good if we spend it all. Once those revenues drop, we have ongoing programs that now we're going to have to cut or find another way to fund. It's just not good budget policy to spend to the very top level of, of what what the revenue is going to be and then assume it will always be there. So that's one reason. And the other, as you say, is those revenues will be gone one day and future generations won't benefit from them. I think it's irresponsible of us to use them all today. And I believe you say in your argument here, uh, by the way, a good place to go, uh, 
anything dealing with voting is vote.utah.gov. You have uh, the arguments put forward by Representative Nielsen and Representative Litvak. Uh, you talk about uh, the fact that some neighboring states uh, have uh, have done what you're suggesting and uh, have built up uh, very nice uh, uh, trust funds. Oh, absolutely. And we have we don't have as much severance tax. We don't have as many natural resources, and they're not as easy to get to as uh, some of our neighboring states. But uh, states like Wyoming and New Mexico decided in the 70s that it made sense to bank some of this in an endowment for future generations and then use the interest of the earnings of the fund in, the reg- in each uh, year. Uh, they now have severance tax funds that are uh, numbered in excess or amount to more than $4 billion each of them. If we'd been doing something like that with our funds uh, and saved uh, from the outset uh, when, when we started uh, bringing, bringing uh, severance taxes in, we would probably have something close to a billion dollars. And what we have instead is actually we've only put about $20 million, $23 million total of severance tax into our fund. We have some other money in there from uh, school trust lands. Or excuse me, not from school trust lands. It's money in there from uh, the tobacco settlement. And that altogether makes just over $120 million. Before I go to Representative Litvak, um, I'd like to have you explain to us uh, how this plan work. If Constitutional Amendment A is passed, uh, my understanding is that uh, sort of a graduated percentage of, of this money would uh, go automatically into the, uh, the permanent trust fund? That's correct. The way we do it now, we, we just set by legislation and say everything above a certain level goes into the fund, but we've set the threshold so high that uh, everything that's coming in is, is being spent. What, what we tried to do, and it was in response to conversations with Representative Litvak and some of his colleagues um, and people across the, across the political spectrum, was make it so that if, if times are good and we bring in more revenues, or if someone is successful even in raising uh, severance taxes, which is not something I would encourage, but that's a separate question, but if they were successful in raising those taxes and revenues went up, then a portion of it would still be spent in the current year. But the more that comes in, as you point out, the greater percentage uh, that will be saved for future generations. In lean times, we spend most of it now, which I think is appropriate. And when, time, when things are flush, we save most of it. Let's turn to Representative Litvak. Uh, why should voters vote against Constitutional Amendment A? Well, I think... You know, there's a, there's a couple of reasons, and, and, and you laid out um, the, the general argument uh, in your opening remarks. But I think the, the, the biggest issue is, uh, you know, what is good budgeting principles and what is good budgeting uh, practice? Uh, the legislature uh, has a strong history of making wise decisions uh, when it comes to uh, using taxpayer do- dollars. Uh, very wise and uh, preparing for what we just went through with the Great Recession and building up our rainy day fund uh, over the years to where it wasn't even drained. And the difficult decisions that we had to make were, were balanced by what we had prepared for. Uh, and we're already building up uh, back towards that preparation. But the most critical piece is that flexibility that the legislature needs to uh, take into account the needs for today and the needs for tomorrow, which, again, I believe that we all already do very well. Uh, Representative Nielsen mentioned that, you know, to this point, other than tobacco trust, uh, tobacco uh, dollars, uh, we've only put about $20 million of the severance tax into the permanent trust fund. And that is in part because we've, it's only been a few years that we've been able to do that 
uh, in 2008, uh, voters passed a constitutional amendment, which I uh, supported, that created the opportunity to take severance tax and put it into the permanent trust fund. And it was done in a way that pres- preserves that flexibility for the legislature. Constitutional Amendment A really ties the hands of the legislature. Is there a out? Yeah, there's an out there's a very, very high bar. Uh, the Constitutional Amendment in 2008 preserves that flexibility, allows the legislature to look at what's happening today, look at what the needs are going to be in the future, and make that proper balance. And when we were able to do that, right before the Great Recession, we did do that. So the legislature has de- has demonstrated time and again the right discipline. And, you know, and the, the other piece for me is, is timing. Uh, I don't you know, like I said, the flexibility is number one. I don't think we uh, should be having this type of specific language in the Constitution. Uh, but when we look at the timing, uh, the fact is that we're still recovering from the Great Recession. Uh, we have a lot of needs today uh, that have gone unmet over the last several years. Um, and making a decision that pulls critical funds, again, the importance of preserving for the future we all agree on that. We all understand about preparing for the future, but not in expense of what those critical needs are today. And I believe that's what, regarding the timing of Constitutional Amendment A, uh, definitely does. Let me turn back to Representative Nielsen, have you, res- you respond to that, uh, the, the argument to unmet needs today and uh, reduced flexibility. Well, thank you. Um, you know, uh, any retirement planner will tell you, any financial planner will tell you that um, in dealing with folks that are trying to plan for the future that there's never a good time. We can always come up with reasons why this is not, that we can't afford it now. And as, as, as families go from different stages to, you know, through their life when their children are young to when they're now they're going to get ready for going to college, whatever, there's always, money's always tight. And if we don't have the discipline to do something, then, um, Nothing will be there when we're at, when we're when we're done, and I guess my question is, question I always ask. Well, let's. I think what I heard was let's wait till times are better, and I, I I always ask the question, and I asked it on the floor of the house when we when we passed this legislation with well more than two thirds, and of course this passed the Senate unanimously. I said, what if this is as good as it gets? What if these are the good times? If these are the good times, we better be saving for when times are, are, are even worse. We don't know what the future holds, and we are in a growing economy. We're having, we're having uh, increased tax revenues. We did last year. We will again this year. I think this is the time to be putting something aside. And as to the issue of uh, two-thirds, um, it does take two-thirds votes of both houses to get the money out of the, out of, out of the fund. Interestingly, if we can intercept it before it gets into the funds, which is what we did in 2011 by increasing the amount we take before it goes in, uh, we can just do that with a majority vote. It just doesn't seem right that the fund is set up to be very, very protected, but yet if we can grab the money before it goes in, just a majority vote takes it out. I, I see that as, as, as problematic. And as to tying the legislature's hands, I, I guess I, I look back to 2003, which I'm not sure everybody agrees it was raining, but it, it, we did use a bunch of rainy day funds at that point, and times were slow then as well, not as bad as we are now. But the legislature did manage to say, okay, we are in serious situation, and they mustered three-quarter vote to take some money out of this trust fund under the same rules that I'm, that I'm talking about. So it's certainly not unprecedented that in an emergency that you could 
marshal the support of enough legislators to use this money if it's absolutely needed. So I don't think it ties our hands, but I think it does provide some discipline because I've been in a legislature when just a simple majority vote just skimmed money off that should have gone into the fund. Let me turn back to Representative Litback and ask you to respond to a, a couple of sure. arguments for... You know, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Absolutely. I mean, no one, no one is saying that there's not a good timing uh, for saving, and 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 no one is saying that now's not a good time to begin to save for the future. But to remove the ability, the ability to make that decision based on what's happening right in front of us, and and be able to have that flexibility to balance current and future needs, that's what Amendment Constitutional Amendment Eight takes away. Is it dictates off the top what actual amount of dollars is going to go into the permanent trust fund. And we need that flexibility. The legislature needs that flexibility. We have a goal, uh, the governor has a goal, and the state legislature concurs with this goal of having 66% of people uh, with some sort of post-high school uh, degree or education by, by 2020. Uh, yet we have a, a higher education system that has been devastated by cuts over the last several years. Uh, we continue to remain uh, at near the bottom of, of education funding per pupil. Uh, we have critical infrastructure needs in transportation and so forth. And we have a changing demographics where our population is getting older and we're beginning to see in, in our health and human services areas where there are growing needs among our population population. These are needs that have been ignored over the last several years. So is now the right time to, to take away some of that flexibility, to take away the ability, some of the ability to, to meet the current pressing needs? I don't think so. Um, again, uh, to, to say that the legislature has not demonstrated the discipline is, is ignoring the history. Uh, we have demonstrated the discipline. We've demonstrated the discipline both in terms of how we've created statute to make sure that we're putting away for, in the rainy day fund for those rainy days uh, on a regular basis. Uh, we, we, as I said, when, when the public gave us the opportunity in the Constitution in 2008 to put away additional funds like severance tax in the permanent state trust fund, we did that. So we've demonstrated the discipline. We have the discipline uh, to do so in the future. Uh, And I think that, again, trusting your elected officials to make those wise decisions both today and in the future, balancing those needs is is the right way to go uh, and a good way of budgeting. Let's just uh, take maybe about a a minute each uh, as we close here. Uh, First, Representative Nielsen, uh, your final pitch for why voters should vote for Constitutional Amendment A. Well, thank you. I I believe all along that our Constitution is there to provide a framework and to provide some limitation on government. We've seen what happens when we use the flexibility that uh, has been allowed up to this point. When I was there in 2011, as I mentioned, we increased the amount we skimmed or spent of severance taxes and didn't put anything in the fund. Uh, We didn't even touch our rainy day money. And we went back and we said proudly to the media, we didn't spend a penny of rainy day funds. Instead, we took something that was meant to be even more secure. I think that we owe it to future generations to save this money. I just want to finish that we need to tell them that our needs are not more important than theirs. And Representative Litvak, your brief uh, final pitch. Constitution Amendment well, A, why should vote against? I would, argue, I would argue that the framework already exists. The voters gave us that framework in 2008. We've demonstrated the discipline to put away. And I would just say in 2011, some of that money that was skimmed off from going to the permanent trust fund went to such critical needs such as preserving breast and cancer screening for our low-income population. Uh, that's the type of 
critical decisions that we're making today. We shouldn't be pitting the needs for today against the needs of tomorrow. We should be providing the balance uh, and the framework that already exists for legislatures to make decisions moving forward. Thank you, uh, both of you, gentlemen, uh, Representative uh, Jim Nielsen and Representative David Litvak. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, Constitutional Amendment A says, shall the Utah Constitution be amended to require a portion of the revenue from all the state's severance taxes? Parenthetically, that means uh, natural resource uh, taxes. Excluding severance tax revenue used uh, for Indian tribes to be deposited into the permanent state trust fund beginning July 1st, 2016. You'll have that on your ballot, and uh, hopefully this debate has been helpful to you in making that decision when you go to the polls. Following a break... We will help uh, you make a decision in House District 3. Uh, We will be talking first with incumbent Republican uh, Representative Jack Draxler and later in the program, a conversation with his Democratic challenger, Roger Donahoe. That's coming up following the break. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by Logan Regional Hospital, offering expanded heart care services and treatment of cardiovascular disease, including interventional cardiology and emergency heart procedures. Information is at loganregional.org. Support is also provided by the 10th Annual Moab Folk Festival this Friday through Saturday, wind and volunteer powered in the heart of Utah's Slick Rock, featuring Susie Bogus, Harry Max. Ellis and others. Information is at moabfolkfestival.com. Thank you for uh, being with us for Access Utah today. As part of our Vote Utah efforts, we have uh, brought you many debates, both national and uh, statewide. Uh, we have been uh, talking about uh, the RAPS tax, for example. That'll be on the ballot for uh, Cache Valley voters. And uh, for all voters in Utah, Constitution Amendment A, that was our topic in the first part of this program. We'll have extensive election night coverage. We have another debate, by the way, coming up uh, for you tomorrow, 1130, live on UPR. That's a lieutenant governor debate. All of that here on Utah Public Radio is part of our Vote Utah efforts. And we turn now to House District 3, which is in northern Utah, Cache Valley area. Uh, later in the program, we'll uh, introduce you to uh, a Democrat, Roger Donahoe. Right now, we uh, turn to incumbent Republican Jack Draxler. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So um, tell us a bit about yourself and, uh, and why voters should uh, reelect you in House District 3. Well, thank you. Uh, I've served in the legislature for three terms now. And your previous interview with Representative Nielsen and, and Representative Litvak is a good example of the quality of people I have the privilege of, of associating with. I've enjoyed that association. Most importantly, I thoroughly enjoy representing my constituents. And I think if you would ask any of my constituents have, who've come to me with, for help with a legislative issue, I think you would find that they would say I'm very approachable and, and quite assertive. In, uh, in looking out for the interests of uh, not only Cache Valley folks, but uh, the state as in general. Uh, I'm a real estate appraiser by profession, uh, have five children and 18 grandchildren, and I have a very strong interest in their future. And that's why uh, I want to uh, be reelected to, to another term and, and uh, represent the north third of Cache County down mm-hmm. in the legislature. Uh, and uh, what are your, t- tell us maybe, uh, we can narrow it down to the top uh, 
two or three issues? What are your top two or three issues that you'll be focusing on? Education is always the top one. Sometimes we are led to believe in the media that the, that education may not be the top issue of the uh, legislature. It is every single session. There are also some very important issues regarding agriculture that I look that, that I watch uh, very closely because uh, I, I feel agriculture is underrepresented and uh, and needs to be. Uh, preserved because it's our food supply and quite often we take that for granted. There are also uh, many health and human services issues that are always uh, in front of us and so uh, I I would anticipate those would be the top issues in the coming session. Mm. What would you uh, what would you do in terms of agriculture? What what measures do you think need to be taken? Well first and foremost we need to to deregulate some of the uh, burdens we've placed on agriculture. Many of those have come from the federal government and uh, as a legislature we are digging in and and saying to the federal government uh, you need to back off you're overreaching you're you're crippling an industry that is uh, to say the least essential to our people. Uh, they're they're making rules regarding dust even when when a farmer plows his field they're saying there shouldn't be uh, any dust created <laughs> and and it goes on and on dairy farmers are extremely regulated uh, we also I've been very uh, closely associated and have sponsored bills to uh, create conservation easements for prime agricultural ground so that it can stay in production and uh, families who want to keep their land in agriculture can do so without being crippled financially. Now, I know the legislature has been concerned. Uh, most Utahns are concerned with K through 12 education. And the the low ranking, uh, continuing long term low ranking in per pupil spending. Uh, what do you propose uh, in in K through 12 education? Well, I support the the governor's and the legislature's program, which is to long term. Uh, grow our economy uh, so that we have a sustainable increase in funding. Funding is too low for public education. We need to increase it. But we differ with our friends uh, in the Democrat Party on how to achieve that. We're we're already seeing this year a dramatic improvement uh, in our plan, the legislature and the governor's plan. Through making Utah a business-friendly state, we have seen uh, increases in hiring and increases in salaries to the tune of about 70 million of new dollars that are, that are coming in just in the first three months of the current fiscal year uh, in terms of income tax. Every penny of income tax in Utah must be spent on education. And so that is the more sustainable long-term solution. Now, uh, the Democrats are suggesting imposing the severance tax on coal. And I think that would actually be counterproductive, and I'll explain to you why. Uh, as an example, about three or four years before I was elected to the legislature, a Republican legislator uh, looked at, at higher ed, said, we, we need more funding. I've got a, a brilliant idea. We will require out-of-state students to, to be residents of Utah for three years rather than one year in order to obtain residency and, and pay in-state tuition. Uh, intuitively, that says, "Oh, hey, we'll triple, we'll triple our revenue from out-of-state tuition." But what happened? The out-of-state students stopped coming. We actually had a reduction 
in the amount of out-of-state tuition that was paid. So that sometimes the intuitive thing doesn't really work out that way. Mm. Coal severance tax is that way. Right now, almost all of our uh, coal mines are on SITLA land, school and institutional trust lands. And they are already required on those state-owned lands to, to pay a royalty of 8%. That goes into a fund that goes directly to our schools. Every single school in the state has a parent advisory committee that gets to decide how those funds will be spent. They love it. It gives them flexibility. So the, on top of that 8% royalty, if you were to impose another uh, 3 to 5 to even 10%, some, some on the other side of the aisle are suggesting... Uh, you're going to cripple some businesses. Uh, our coal industry is not like the coal industry in, in Wyoming. Their coal resources are right on the surface. They strip mine them, and they can get millions of uh, tons more coal per man hour than we can in Utah because almost all of ours are underground, and, uh, and ours are almost all smaller companies. Uh, you put anywhere from 11 to 20% surcharge on every ton of coal they they bring in they will close and as a matter of fact we have had some coal mines closed down this year already because coal has become a four-letter word unfairly in my opinion and so the demand and the prices for coal are down so uh, a severance tax on coal would not uh, would not bring in more revenue and and in fact like the case with out-of-state tuition I believe would probably cause a reduction in revenue if you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Republican Representative Jack Draxler. Uh, he's the incumbent in uh, House District 3, and we're uh, talking to him in this part of the program. Later, we'll be talking with his Democratic challenger, Roger Donahoe. Uh, I'd like to uh, to continue the discussion with K-12. through um, Democrats are saying that we've been struggling just to fund, and, and the increases so far, uh, just to uh, fund growth. And, uh, you know, explosive growth in Utah seems like that'll continue. Uh, how can we fund actual increases above growth? Through growth in the economy is the primary method. Uh, we will never, because of our demographics, even be in the top half of spending uh, per pupil in this nation because we have many, many more children. And uh, But we need to improve it. And I would be open to any measure that could improve the funding for for. Uh, public ed if it were feasible. Uh, so far, the only feasible method that I, that I see is through the governor's plan of continuing to grow our economy, uh, continuing with more jobs, better jobs, and uh, that feeds then into the, uh, not only the income tax fund, every penny of which needs to be spent on education, but it, it means greater uh, sales tax revenue, property tax revenue, and, and uh, the needs of the state can be better addressed that way than simply placing more taxes. Another thing that is being advocated uh, by my opponent is to roll back our income tax to a higher rate. We're just coming out of a recession. That is the last thing that we need right now is a higher tax on individuals and families. And uh, frankly, the, the climate in the legislature is not to raise those taxes, and I don't believe anyone, Republican or Democrat, could, could achieve that goal of rolling back to higher rates of income tax. What about higher education? Is it the same model? The, the improving economy will provide more funds? Will that be sufficient? Uh, 
uh, the the uh, higher education suffered much greater cuts during the recession, about 25%, than public ed. Public ed only ended up with maybe 5%, neither of which is desirable, obviously, because those education programs are what feeds our economic development because one of the reasons businesses come to Utah and we're voted the number one state for business and for new careers is an educated and hardworking workforce. We need to keep it that way. Let me talk about the um, what opponents call expensive message bills, what proponents call uh, very necessary um, measures and uh, exemplified by the recent uh, bill passed in the legislature, which would mandate or which would demand back from the federal government uh, public lands. Uh, wonder what your your position on on that and in general those types of bills. You know, I'm I'm results oriented. What will what will produce results? The desirable results. Our effort to, to have the federal government live up to the statehood charter and grant more of the land that they now control back to the control of the state and or to private ownership uh, has already yielded results. I don't know if we'll get all this land back, but we have to draw the line somewhere. The time is now for states to stand up to the federal government and say, You're, you've overreached. You've got way more power than the Constitution grants you. What has happened is that prior to the passage of this bill, the Secretary of Agriculture, Ken Salazar, had canceled dozens of leases on federal ground in Utah where we could drill oil, natural gas, or mine for certain minerals that that are essential. Um, But since the passage of the bill, he has backpedaled and has now granted dozens of new leases. I believe that is directly related to our state asserting itself and saying, feds, you've gone too far. You need to, you need to be more flexible with this. Mm. So I, I guess your extension of that argument would be whatever money gets tied up in this is worth it to, to get the attention of the federal government and get some effects. Absolutely, because, you know, we only allocated $3 million dollars if we get involved in litigation with the federal government, which we hope to avoid. But the new, just the new leases will create many, many more millions than that in terms of revenue to the state, in terms of good jobs, in terms of sales tax revenues, and supplying a resource that we absolutely need and would like to be less dependent on foreign countries for. Hmm. Let me ask you about, uh, there's, there's an, uh, an argument being put forward by the Democrats, not only you know, against you, but... Uh, many Republican members of the legislature, has to do with transparency. Open government, uh, one argument is the closed caucuses for the Republicans. The other one I think you're, you're involved in uh, directly with the House Bill 477, the, uh, and I'm sure you, you felt the pushback from, from many uh, constituents. Mm-hmm. So first of all, the, the, uh, the open records, the, the ground, what's your position now after all that? Well, many, many people thought <clears throat> that House Bill 477 was going to eliminate transparency and eliminate public access to government records. It absolutely did not do that. Uh, Virtually every member of the Republican Party in the House was a co-sponsor, including me. Uh, Sometimes we're pointed out as if we were the only co-sponsor, but uh, that bill 
clarified some things about government rec- the Government Records Access Management Act that were new to our society that when that bill first was passed, we didn't have. We didn't have text messaging, for example, then. And so the, the new bill clarified what procedure should be followed to get those records. It still allows access. What it did in, in regard to text messages was it said a text message is like a conversation. Uh, that doesn't. That is not a public record. Uh, emails are. Uh, written mail is, and of course the the, the actions uh, taken by government uh, in the legislative session obviously are. Uh, there was a, an outcry against it. It is now a dead issue because uh, the bill was repealed. I happened to be in Washington State visiting my sister who was dying of cancer, uh, and missed that repeal vote. But uh, many people who thought that that bill was eliminating access to public records and eliminating transparency hadn't read that bill. Mm. So if if there were a climate for it, would you like to see this readdressed? I don't think there is a climate for it, obviously. Mm. So as I say, it's it's a dead issue. We absolutely need transparency. The public absolutely does need access to the actions of their of the of their elected officials no question about that do you think generally the the legislature is transparent yes i do and and the argument about closed caucuses you know it's interesting that the democrats sometimes close their caucuses as well if you're going to be talking about sensitive issues uh you should you should be able to close a caucus uh the senate every one of their caucuses are closed in the house republican caucus Almost all of our caucuses are open caucuses. People are welcome to come in. There are rare occasions when we close the caucus because we're discussing sensitive issues. Mm. And we may even be discussing personalities and issues that that uh, we owe it to individuals to, to have a, a degree of confidentiality. But anything we decide in a closed caucus has no effect unless it takes place out on the floor of the House then it's completely public and completely open. I think the argument, though, is that uh, since Republicans have such large majorities, that in essence some of the businesses, you know, being previewed and and uh, and worked out, and then you then you take it to the to the floor. Well, I wish you could be in some of those closed caucuses. That's kind of counterproductive or counter to what I'm saying. But if you were there, you would learn it is not a bunch of scheming and and not a bunch of of uh, stacking the deck, if you will. Uh, it is discussing issues that, that uh, are properly discussed in private, but uh, it's rare, mm. and, uh, and it ought to be rare. Uh, I don't apologize for our majorities. Our majorities are what they are because the, of, the, of the electorate, the people elect us. Mm. Uh, and because we have a huge majority is, is a reflection of the preference of the public. So mm. I, I don't apologize for those majorities at all. Okay. I might take you up on that as an invitation and, and uh, you know, try, try to attend what you <laughs> A special caucus. exception yeah. to a closed caucus. <laughs> I probably wouldn't, wouldn't get in. And, and I probably <laughs> don't have the pull to get, bring that either. <laughs> probably. Uh, finally, uh, at the end here, just a couple of minutes, I'll, I'll have you, you know, make a closing argument why voters should vote for you. Uh, I want to uh, address briefly uh, Medicaid and health care. Of course, the Affordable Care Act has been upheld. And, uh, and now the state will have to make some decisions. Right. I wonder how you think that should go. Part of the Supreme Court decision was that states may decide if they want to participate in the extension of Medicaid 
far beyond the poverty level. Uh, Obamacare, or the Affordable Health Care Act, extends Medicaid eligibility to people at 137% of the poverty level. Personally, I have no, re- I have no idea why you want to go a third beyond the poverty level and extend uh, Medicaid to, to those folks. Number one, we simply can't afford it. And people say, well, for every dollar uh, that the state puts in, the federal government puts in three. Well, the federal government can't afford it either. They're running up gigantic debts. And so I am opposed uh, to extending Medicaid beyond where it is now. Our budget is straining mightily to, to, to pay the Medicaid bill we have in Utah right now. And uh, finally, your, your, your pitch to voters. Why should voters reelect uh, Jack Draxler to the, to the House? Well, uh, thanks for giving me the time, and, and I, I, I appreciate the fact that you're promoting this exchange of views and, and, uh, and, and issues. It's, it's great, and that's our system, and I, I love participating in it. Uh, I think if you talk, for example, to the two superintendents of our school districts in Cache Valley, they will tell you that I am a friend of education. I think if you talk to the farmers in Cache Valley, they'll tell you I'm a friend of agriculture and that I fight for their interests and needs. Uh, And I think uh, I was awarded uh, uh, Legislator of the Year from uh, from, uh, the Utah Council for Disabilities because I I think government has a responsibility to those who, who can't fend for themselves. So I think I have a balanced approach to government uh, I do believe that we need to live within our means, and one of the great things about Utah is that we have a constitutional requirement for a balanced budget. Uh, we also have rainy day funds that are cri- critical, and and uh, my participation in all of that I think has been positive, and uh, I would appreciate the vote of the public to to have another term doing that. We've been talking with incumbent Republican Representative Jack Traxler representing District 3 in northern Utah. Coming up, we will we'll, uh, meet uh, his Democratic challenger, Roger Donahoe. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are spending the hour helping you as a voter get prepared for when you uh, go into that voting booth. And uh, in this half of the program... We're getting to know the candidates for Legislative District 3 in northern Utah. Now it's the turn of Democrat Roger Donahoe. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so first of all, introduce yourself to, uh, to our listening audience and then tell us why are you running? Well, I am Roger Donahoe. I've been a Utah resident now for going on three decades. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and to finally put some faces behind the voices that I've listened to. Uh, I'm running for the Utah House of Representatives, Rep- Representatives because I think I can make a difference. I think I've got some ideas, partic- particularly on some major issues that we've got that uh, hopefully we can talk about today, education, and particularly education funding and, and improving our schools, um, ethics reform, uh, holding our legislators accountable, and I want I want everybody to know that if I'm elected, I will be 100% accountable to the people for everything I say, everything I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a little bit of my background, I've, I've been a city council member in the past, an elected position. That's the only elected position that I've held. I've um, 
uh, as I said, spent more than two decades now in education. I've been a professional teacher in our schools here in Utah, so I've got a really in-depth background as to to how the education system works and funding and finance and things like that. I'm a part-time school administrator. I have my administrative endorsement from Utah State University. Um, I've been a dairy farmer. Uh, I spent about seven or eight years doing that, so I understand the farming aspect of Cache Valley, and I'm a big supporter of, of those people, and I know how hard they work, and I know the hours they work. Uh, I've been a small business owner. I've had two small businesses that I've owned, and they've been both uh, successful. And I think I've got a well, well-rounded background that gives me insights into a wide variety of issues and concerns and in the direction that we need to go. So you're you're on the front lines in education. Uh, I'm guessing uh, that you feel like the the legislature has not funded K through 12 at the appropriate levels. Uh, well, they haven't, and you know we can listen to to what they say that they fully funded education. What they funded is they funded the growth in education, and and they've uh, omitted funding um, the growth in the economy. Um, uh, and there's an economist down in Davis County named Doug McDonald with EconoWest who's done a lot of extensive research in education funding. And he's identified tax shifts that we've gone through over the last 20 years or so that have removed between a billion and $1.7 billion in funds from our public schools, K-12 schools. And so that's money that would have been there without these tax shifts. Now, I wouldn't propose that we reverse everything. I don't think that's the right answer, but we need to stop the direction that we're going at the at the present time. We need to stop the diversion of these funds and and make sure that uh, that we appropriately fund our education. When people say that there's just not any money there, uh, that's not entirely true. The reason there's not any money there is because our our legislature over the past 20 years has has made sure that there's not any money there. Uh, of course, you you addressed one of the reasons why we're straining with with education funding. That's we have a lot of students and uh, and a big big growth. That has some nice economic effects down the road, but it's still a, a problem. A lot of students can can we increase that per pupil funding? Well, there, I think we can. Uh, there's some good ideas. First of all, we need to look at our funding effort that we've taken. Just to carry on what I've said uh, before, our test scores, our national test scores, have dropped in direct correlation to the funding effort that we're uh, making in Utah. We were um, eighth place in 1992 and we're dropped, we've dropped to 38th and our, our fourth and eighth grade test scores on these national tests have dropped from uh, 13 or 14 to the low 20s and high 30s, uh, low 30s, high, high 20s and low 30s. Um, so there's a problem. Um, we've got some ideas. I've, I've talked with uh, Representative Draxler, my opponent, in the past about severance taxes on coal and he doesn't think that'll work but i think if we put a five percent severance tax on coal um that we can raise uh between 75 and 100 million dollars in additional revenue that can be earmarked uh for our schools um he argues that that would break the coal industry but currently and he points out himself that there's an eight percent royalty fee charged on coal taken out off off state lands well if the coal companies can make money uh, with an eight percent fee they can certainly make money with a five percent fee it's a perfect funding opportunity for our schools hundred million dollars there um, also our severance taxes on oil and natural gas currently the effective tax rate that utah has on those 
resources is between a third, uh, is about a third of that of the other Western states. And I propose just doubling that tax rate uh, that these companies pay for our resources. We call these taxes, they're really fees. They're not a tax in the sense of an income tax or a, a sales tax or gas tax or anything like that. These are fees that these mining companies pay to extract the resources that belong to the people. So they're buying the resources from the people, and we're selling them really cheap in Utah. But last year, Utah brought in $105 million in severance taxes on oil and natural gas. And by just doubling those fees, we'll still be under the Western state average, and we'll, we'll increase our funding by another $100 million. So there's, there's about $200 million right there for our education. Uh, significant increase, money we need. So you've you've addressed the, the my next question, um, which is you know, which is this would be additional monies, which is what you're proposing, so we wouldn't have to take from other areas in the budget. You believe definitely, and it, so it's new money, and it's money, and it's it, it's cheap money. A lot of this is going to come from out of state. You know, the people that buy our, our power that's generated or people who buy the coal and the oil and the natural gas, this is not money that Utah taxpayers are going to have to come up with. Some of it will be, uh, certainly, because a lot of our uh, utilities are, are generated here in Utah, our, our power and all. But a, a lot of it goes to out of state, and so all of that money would be new money. There would be a, a very insignificant uh, increase maybe in utility bills. One uh, economist says three cents a month. Um, so very minimal. What are your priorities then beyond education? Before I go there, let me talk about higher education. Do you, do you have similar concerns about funding for higher education? Well, well, I do, and a lot of the um, a, a lot of this growth can alleviate funding in higher education as well. I know there's been a problem uh, in recent years with the economic downturn. Anytime you have a uh, a downturn like we've had in the last three or four or five years, um, then funds are scarce for everybody. So this funding for a K-12 education would also help to alleviate part of the funding problems for higher ed. Uh, another thing we need to, to really watch out for and protect is our, our uh, student loans for our students. I think that is probably the, the number one way that uh, students of lower and mid incomes are going to be able to attend college, those who don't qualify for scholarships or whose scholarships maybe don't cover their whole education. I think that is an important point that uh, we need to really fight for and we need to team up because there's a big push to, to, to limit that or, or make access to them difficult. Uh, so then, uh, beyond education, um, what would be your next couple of budget priorities? So would it be social services? What 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 things are you concerned about? We're looking at some issues with social services with the Medicaid, and uh, I've got an appointment to talk with a couple of our doctors, our local doctors, to find out exactly what the impact of uh, recent changes in health care, the Affordable Health Care Act, and and all have had on our local uh, medical community and. And when I when I ask them to set up this appointment to meet with them, uh, there, there's some serious concerns, and those are some issues that we really have to look at. Medicaid's gone from, and, and I'm I'm throwing numbers out here, and I'm going from memory, and uh, but from 10% of our budget to 20%, and that's a significant increase, and uh, we're looking at even more and more increases in the future. Hmm. So it's something we we need to be concerned about. And of course, the, uh, the state will have to decide how they're going to approach uh, the areas where we have flexibility in the states, right. the Affordable Care Act. Right, right. Um, 
I, I noticed that uh, on your website you also uh, talk about um, ethics, transparency. Of course, we had the whole grandma and open records kerfuffle in the last uh, legislature. Um, and uh, is that what you're talking about there? It, also exactly. That, well, that's part of it. That's, uh, that's one part of it, and it's an important part of it. House Bill 477 is one of the things you're uh, referring to, I believe. And that was a bill that was sponsored by, co-sponsored by my opponent, Mr. Jaxler. And, uh, you know, I, I called him on it uh, last week in a, in a debate that we had, and I was surprised to find that he still supports a lot of the principles that are in that bill. Now, we're talking about a bill that is probably, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the most controversial bill in this century. And, uh, and, and it, elected officials are there to serve the people, and the people have a right to know exactly what's going on and everything that they're talking about. And this bill limits our access to those communications. And, and one line even requires that uh, if people request documents, they have to pay for them, um, which in some cases I probably support that, but not in a general Hmm. Since, so that that one's probably not coming back. That was there was a big outcry, but but uh, I guess you would say that uh, this is just an indication of where uh, of of where your opponents are. Well, there, but, yes, but there are elements of that that they're still pushing, hmm. and and he even indicated in in our our debate that they were going to regroup and reapproach some of those issues, which is a big concern. But there's other things too. One of the things is closed caucus meetings. And I've talked with several uh, current and former legislators uh, who have indicated that one of their biggest concerns is that uh, people go into caucus meetings, legislators, and uh, they discuss issues and then they they team up and they decide which issues they're going to push for and how they're going to vote. And then they come out and they vote on it. The decision's already been made before any discussion or any public input has really been considered. Uh, I'd be for having all caucus meetings open to the public. Uh, the Democratic Party supports that already. They have open caucus meetings, but a lot of the Republican caucus meetings are closed meetings and uh, not open to the public, and that's a big concern. Uh, there's another, there's a group called Utahns for Ethical Government that's uh, uh, Kim Birmingham, who's a former legislator, a former member of the state school board, uh, is the head of that group, and they're pushing currently for ethics reform. They sent out a survey a few weeks ago with three simple yes or no questions. Uh, would you vote for prohibiting uh, a person serving as both a lobbyist and a legislator at the same time? Would you uh, support a bill that uh, mandated a two-year waiting period after leaving the legislature before uh, serving as a lobbyist and closing loopholes in our finance laws. And uh, Representative Draxler, along with the majority of the House Republicans, never even responded to that bill. Um, uh, several of them did and, and voted in the affirmative for those, for those reforms. So I would, I would work with Utahns for Ethical Government to uh, make sure that our campaign, our campaign disclosure laws uh, ranked 47th in the nation. We received an F grade uh, by a national group that uh, oversees this stuff. It's terrible. Um, right now, you uh, you can get away with literally using a lot of your campaign contributions for any personal use you want. We need to close that. I notice um, this question, I think, will always come up as long as we have... Uh one party very strong and the other one not as strong. I know you, you've addressed this right on your website. Uh, finally, a Democrat that every Republican can vote for. How, you, what, what are you saying there? 
Well, first of all, I want to point out that I'm I'm very conservative financially. I'm not out to jack up anybody's income taxes or their property taxes or anything like that. I think we need to leave those alone. We're one of the, the lower tax states in the country. Um, and, you know, we can debate the ranking on that. But uh, we need to keep it that way. I think we're third lowest in property taxes, and that's a good thing. Uh, but we need to recognize, too, that with everything you gain, you lose something. And what we've lost is funding for our education system. Um, so I want to I maintain strong financial policies, uh, strong moral uh, legislation and, and uh, things like that. And I believe that, I believe that uh, a lot of my feelings are right in line with Utah values. And people can go on my website and, and check that out for themselves. Mm. I feel strongly about that. I uh, can hear Republicans in my head saying, and I'll have you about this, um, well, what about, and that's all very well and good, and we can all agree on that, uh, you know, from their perspective, but uh, your plan to, to raise some money for education sounds kind of like a tax increase. Well, you know, and, and, and it's tax increase in name only. It's like I pointed out that these are actually um, royalty fees that the company should have been paying all along, and they haven't been paying. We are giving our coal away. We're not receiving one penny for anything taken off of federal lands. I don't think that's fair. Um, I think I, I think that this is a resource that belongs to the people, and the people deserve uh, to be uh, compensated for it. Um, what do you make of the uh, legislation passed in the last, last uh, session, um, which would demand public lands back from the uh, federal government? Uh, this is this, this has been hotly contested. Some Republicans say that this is absolutely necessary. Democrats are calling this a, a costly message bill. Well, it is a message bill, and and it it can't possibly go anywhere. And they say that the Enabling Act, which is the uh, contract between the state of Utah and the federal government when we became a state, uh, they say that in the Enabling Act that uh, it says that Utah will receive those lands granted back to them, and. It, that's absolutely false. It's not true. There is nowhere in the Enabling Act that says that we will receive anything um, that is not specifically spelled out in that act. In fact, it says just the opposite. Uh, in Section 12, it says, The state of Utah shall not be entitled to any further or other grants of land for any purpose than as expressly provided in this act. I think that's pretty clear. Now, l let's look beyond that, though. Uh, two things. First of all, um, they say that we need to uh, raise r this land to raise revenue. Uh, that's a good argument. But we are already receiving $650 million a year benefit to our economy through severance taxes, uh, royalty fees, uh, logging, grazing fees, mineral uh, taxes, um, land use fees, jobs for Forest Service and BLM and everything else related to the federal government. Uh, $650 million is a good chunk of change that we're going to have to make up if uh, if we're going to take these lands over. They also put in there, and this is from the Enabling Act, that 5% of the sales and proceeds would go to public education to the permanent school fund. And then they say 95% would go to pay off the national debt. I want to point out that we're talking about a lot of money, but at the same time, it's really not when you consider how far our nation's in debt. If we sold these 22 million acres in question for $1,000 an acre, the 95% would 
pay off about one-fifth to one-fourth of one percent of our national debt. It would provide about 25 to 30 dollars a year per kid in our schools. And so, so the benefit by selling these lands financially would be almost nothing. And the same time, you turn around, then we don't have any land left. And these are the lands that we hunt on, that we hike on, we fish, we camp, we ride ATVs and snowmobiles, we graze cattle, we log, uh, and mineral resources, and all of these things would be lost. These are lands of our Utah heritage, and I, I, I feel so strongly about that that we can't let this go. These are public lands. And we call it, they call them federal lands. These are public lands. They're owned by me, they're owned by you, and they're owned by everybody. Finally, your, your brief uh, closing statement, as it were. Why should people vote for Roger Donahoe uh, as a representative from the 3rd District? Well, I love this valley, and I love the people here. You know, I've been here for several years now, and, uh, you know, I've, I've interacted with people, with kids, their parents, and I honestly believe that there's no better place in the world to raise kids, and uh, I, want, I want to be the representatives. I've got some good ideas. I think we can address school funding. I think we can call our legislature on some of the, the misdirection that's been going on that we've talked about. Um, I want to be there. I want to fight for the, the people of Cache Valley. And I think that uh, my values and I think that the, the points and the views that I've uh, brought up here, that we've brought up here, um, align directly with the majority of the people in this county. And uh, I'm not one that's going to sit around and be pushed around. I'll, I'll go to bat for you. Roger Donahoe, a Democratic candidate for the state of Utah House of Representatives, District 3, which is in northern Utah. Um, Roger Donahoe, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1, 91.5 Logan.